hello, hello, hello. What up, everybody who is listening to me? Welcome to episode 33. 33. A lot of threes going on there. Two threes. 33. I hope everybody's been enjoying everything uh, so far. Uh, I got some other things swirling in my head about this podcast and possibly maybe even another podcast. But I don't want to reveal that. I'm just telling you where my head is at today because I'm getting ready to have this amazing guest on here, someone who I've uh, respected and have looked up to for many years here in the music um, scene here in Syracuse, New York. He was a rock star long before I was even born. Let me put it that way. I don't want to date him, but I'm sure he won't mind me saying that. But I'm having a guy by the name of Joe Whiting. Jumping Joe Whiting, man, he has done everything in this town, has been doing it for, I got to say, 50 years, 50 years. We'll get into that. I want to talk to him. I want to pick his brain. Joe and I have been acquaintances and gotten to know each other, obviously, over the years from being in the music scene. So somebody I looked up to when I was growing up and I was reading, you know, the Syracuse newspapers or the Syracuse New Times, which used to be our free paper here, you couldn't escape any article without hearing something about Joe Whiting. Uh, and also his partner in crime for many different projects over the years, Mark Doyle, who I eventually want to have on the podcast as well. But um, I mean, every time he turned around, Joe was in in the news for something, some new project or something that he had done in the past or a new record or a new accolade that he got. This guy has fucking done it. If anybody I've looked up to, Joe is definitely one of the cats cats in this town that I have looked up to. So I'm really looking forward to finally having a conversation. We'll see where it's going to go. We're going to talk about his history. We're going to talk about what he's doing now. And we'll probably talk about where he sees things going. I mean, we're, we're seeing, we're going to see some, uh, some wisdom from one of the original cats in this town. So everybody, please welcome Joe Whitey. You're on time too. <laughs> and that's it's an untypical musician, right? I know. And you know, I'm just the same way. I'm, if I'm not early, I'm late. You know I mean? It's just, it's just ingrained in me. I, I, I know it's been, I, I don't understand the musicians that, constantly late like what did you do you, this is your job like what have you been doing I know. that's your job it's your reputation for Christ's sake but hey we're the minority <laughs> right but what do we know right so yeah right. Dude, I, I, I appreciate you finally coming on I've been you know working on this podcast for quite some time and you were always on my radar to come on and chit chat because uh, as, oh, I sure, said, I as I said as I said in the intro of this podcast I'm like you have been doing this for a long time. And I said, and, it, and, it's, and I said 50 years, but then I'm thinking it's how many years it's over 50 it, at this point. It's even, it's even longer. I know. I, I think I pay, played my first paid gig. It, it was the spring of 1964. <laughs> so yes. <laughs> so yeah. So we're talking almost, almost 60 years. Yeah. Wow. I know. I know. Does it feel like 60 years? You know, it, it, the odd part, Joe, is when you when you get older, you obviously you look in the mirror and you can see you've gotten older, but you don't, other than the aches and pains, I, you know, I still have the energy and I still have the desire uh, and the enthusiasm uh, and the love for what I do, but you, you, no, it doesn't. If you ask me, it doesn't seem like almost 60 years, it does not. I bet you once you sit down and you really start looking, looking at the perspective and everything that you've done, because I've been doing this full time for 20 years. So a third yeah, of the time, and I'm like, man, it's flown by. And then I sit there and think about it. I'm like, wow. <laughs> There's well, yeah, you're, you're right. Happened. And it does. Yeah. A, a lot has happened. A lot has changed. And it does go by. It, it does go by so quick. Uh, I mean, I think back of some gigs and, I, and it's almost like another lifetime ago. And then sometimes I'll think of a piece that may have happened 30 years ago. And I can remember everything about it, you know, like it was just yesterday. It's, uh, uh, yeah. It's, I guess everybody kind of goes through that. Uh, we're lucky because, you know, we get to, you know, perform and play music for, for different people all the time, but with a return, you know, clientele, a lot, but yeah, I mean, and at this stage, I mean, I was, uh, in March, I was 73. And so now, you know, I mean, I lost a lot of friends last, uh, last year, I bet you uh, some to COVID, you know, and some to just, 
the, the age. Just thing. the like age. The people that I played with, yeah. Yeah, the played I mean, guys that I played many gigs with. I, I think about that. I've had this conversation with other people. And I go, we're unfortunately at this age because everyone's like, oh, I can't believe so-and-so has passed. So-and-so has passed. Like we're looking at our stars, not just our rock stars, but like the people, our celebrities and the people that we grew up. The icons are all starting to pass away. That generation is unfortunately at that age where this is going to happen. And I go, man, in the next 10 years, it's not going to get like, if this is surprising you in the next 10 years, it's going to just get worse, you know? So, and I equate it to this because I don't think we will ever see what we've seen. And I'm glad that in my lifetime, I got to experience some of the, like what I call the golden age, you know, yeah. when people were such big rock stars that they permeate permeated everybody's lives, regardless yeah. if you listen to their music or not, you know, yep. um, because you have Perfect. these stars now that are out there that I don't even know their name. And then my daughter or my stepdaughter tells me about, it. I'm like, who is this? And I'm like, Oh, they got 50 million followers on TikTok, and they're worth all this. And I'm like, who are they? Like, and I agree in the seventies and eighties, you knew who kiss was, you knew who Madonna yeah. was, you knew yeah. regardless, you just knew that. So like, we're seeing the deaths of like the, our, our Roman gods of celebrity. You yeah, know. because now the celebrities come and go so regularly. And yeah, there is some real talent out there, you know, some exceptional talent. But, you know, much of it, uh, much of it, and I don't want to sound like an old coot, but I guess I am, but much of it is just kind of the garden variety. That there's just nothing spectacular, just the right age, the right time, yeah. the right manager, you know. And, and I guess. In some ways, it's always been like that, but not like you're saying. It, it's exponentially fast. Out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they come and they go, and you just hope to, for their sake that they hold on to their money because, you know, it's a, it's a quick ride <laughs> up and it's a quicker ride down. It is, because, I mean, you, you've been through the ringer longer than I have, and you came from, I mean, the, in the amount of time that you've been in this business, you've seen this business change dramatically from the mid sixties. And even when you were a younger kid to watch what, what it's like to get record deals and what that meant all the way up through, you know, a a, a good part of your career, there was no MTV. There was no like, you know, mass audience reach. And then all of a sudden you saw the eighties and you saw that. And then you saw the advent of CDs and then the whole thing, MP3s like you've, you've seen the gamut of it all. So like, you yeah. know, like when that does come, even back then, like if the money's coming, like hold on to it or be smart with it because you don't know, it could be gone tomorrow. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, I've been very fortunate uh, in, in a lot of ways, you know, like you have, you know, we, we get to perform, we get to play. And if that, you know, the superstardom thing, that's where it is very rarefied. And most people in the entertainment and music business, it's quite success with where the air is rarefied. But there are so many countless people that make a living at making music, whether they're performers, writers, or yeah. producers, or anything. Nobody, and I used to tell this, you know, I sometimes was speaking in front of kids, and I would say, who's the producer of your, tell me who your favorite artist is. And I ask them who the producer is. Who arranges stuff? They have no idea because <laughs> they don't care. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I had, a, I had a guy in the podcast last week his name is Tyson Leslie and like no one would know that name from anything else. But I mean, he's a side guy. He's a hired gun. He's played with like country artists. He's played with, you know, rock. I mean, some of the big, biggest rock artists out there now and then. And like, it's people like him yeah. and these producers that are really the music. They're the bread and butter of the music industry. It's yeah, those people that come and, and you can, you can make a good living within that because there was a time and this is the first question I'll probably ask you is like, there was a time that you wanted to be a huge rock star. That was, that was the goal. I want to yep. be, I want to be <laughs> Elvis. I want to be that person, <laughs> yeah. but then it changed. Yeah. But like, yeah. when do you think you, it wasn't that you gave up on that dream, but that you realized, okay, I can still make a living doing this, but I, the chances of me coming that big rock star is, is, is gone. <laughs> And it's okay. And, and, yeah. and you come to terms with it and you were comfortable with that. Do you remember that moment or that period? Yeah, of- I think it's a time and I associate with like being an actor when you are the leading man or a fighter, you're the contender. And then all of a sudden you're not the champ 
and you're not a contender anymore. You're just an opponent. Yeah, a good opponent for someone who's going to have a good show, and you can always count on them, but you're not a contender anymore. And that, you know, once you cross that bridge, it's okay. It, but it, there is a time where probably, maybe it was 20 years ago, maybe, you know, that I thought, and I would see gigs at concerts. I should be getting that gig. Why am I not getting that gig? <laughs> you know, and, and then you accept the fact that, you know, it's, some of it is, uh, you know, just a, the changing audience, the, the, the demographics, the age and everything, and just the way that it works, you know. And uh, so, yeah, then then you realize, you know, you're pretty lucky. I've never, you know, tell you the truth, you're only in the last years. Have I even looked at what I've done or do as a career? I've always looked at it. I got a gig. You know? Yeah. Yeah, I do too. Like, I mean, the last yeah. day job I worked was in 2001, and I haven't worked like a day job since. And it's like. And that's great. And that's great. And count your blessings. Oh, it's, it's, it's still, but I still have that, like, there's all day, always that ever looming fear. Like. Am I going to wake up tomorrow and all the gigs? No, <laughs> Which well, happened last question. year for a minute. Like I woke up. I'm like, oh my God. All everybody. The, exactly. I'm like, oh my yeah. God, all the gigs are gone. What am I going to do? Like it literally <laughs> happened. You are in a good position, Joe. And, and obviously you can't turn back the hands of time. And I'm fortunate in my niche or whatever. But if someone was going to come to me, a young person was going to say, what would I want to be a musician? And I want to be successful. I want to be a performer, whatever. I would say, learn the piano because yeah. then you can get a get you don't have to rely on anybody not a, not another single person you just have to rely on your own talent yeah. you can play in a band you can be a side man but the bottom line is is you can go out with your instrument and play without anybody else so you know that's why that's why some people are like why don't why don't you have a band and i'm like well it's called just joe it's called just joe for a reason because at the end of yeah, the night yeah. if i got if i get paid 300 bucks I get to keep all 300 of that dollars, you know? And you don't got to listen to anybody complain, anybody nope. whine. Nope. You know, anybody say, I want to do my own song. I want to do this. You know, and like I said, I'm a band guy, you know, I, I, I and I do a duo that I love. But, uh, you know, if you're starting out, and I tell people same thing, um, if you're going to start out and you're going to you know, seriously be a professional musician, you better use all the tools at your disposal, yeah. and there's plenty of them. Learn to read music like a freaking book. Like yeah. someone's giving you a book you never read before. Now, you know, I can't do that. I can't sight read. You know, I can read some enough to keep, keep me out of trouble. But I, if someone puts a piece of music that I never heard before in front of me, <laughs> put a gun to my head. I could, you know, no way. That's one thing that I, I, my mom initially taught me how to play piano. She taught me the very simple basics and I, I, I outgrew what she could teach me pretty soon. And, but the one thing that she really taught me that is, has been the most invaluable thing was the ability to read music. And yeah, I, she taught yeah. me how to read music at the same time I was learning how to read words. So yeah, like, man, that's a great gift. And, and that to this day has allowed me to like, I can listen to something for like about five or 10 seconds. If I pull up the sheet music or a, like a crib sheet or some kind of cheat yeah. sheet on the internet, I can get, the, I can get you that song like that, you yeah. know, and that, that's, that, a, that's, a, that's a lost deal. art, man. And I tell people, I'm like, man, you learn to read music, like learn to yep. read it and learn to read it. And once you learn it, then that is a, that'll, that'll take you further than that's anything. It, it definitely will. It opens so many doors and it makes communication with other musicians so much better because even if they can't read per se, you can communicate in chord structures and, and so much that if you are totally ignorant of that stuff and you just do by ear, uh, it's tough sometimes to get the point across. Yeah. Well, let's, let's go back. You talked about your first paying gig. Where was it? And when was it? You said 1964, but where was it? It was right here in Skinny Alice, and I drive by the place almost every day when I take my dog for a walk. It was a, it was a birthday party in Skinny Atlas where we had a five-piece band, <laughs> and the we wanted we wanted twenty dollars in total, and the mother of the girl said, "We can't pay that. We can only fifteen dollars." And I said, "You can't divide five into 15. <laughs> so, so my first gig was a negotiation, you know, and it's, 
held me in, in good uh, got twenty, and I can remember the first fucking song that we did. What was the it? First what was song it? we opened with it was uh, "California Sun" by the Rivieras. Uh, they literally rolled up the rug in the living room and we played. Showed up in a '64 Falcon convertible that the, the guitar player had, brand new. Yeah. My God, that's crazy. That what that would I mean? I think about that too. It's like when I go back to that first one, and then you're like, man, if I knew what that first note would lead me to now, <laughs> holy crap! You know? Yeah. Who knew? That's not you know the first band that I was in. And now time. At the time, I was in the first band I was in for just a little over two years. And when it broke up, I thought, that's it. That's it. That's, <laughs> these are the only guys I'm ever going to play with. <laughs> you know, it was, so, it was so shocking. I gained 20 pounds. My girlfriend moved out of town. <laughs> I You're like, well, that's it. <laughs> that was fun. That was fun. He thought, you know, and then, and then it goes from there. But like, when, so when you were coming up in the music scene at that time, um, who are, who are the big cats then? Who are the people that you were looking up to? Because I think about this and I said in my, in my intro, like when I was growing up, I lived out in Santa square, which at that time seemed a million miles away from Syracuse. So I never really ventured into the city until I was a later teenager until I was a young adult. So I didn't get to see all these acts that I would read about in the new times or the post standard and everything else. And like the two people that I always read about a lot was yourself and Mark, and also, you know, people like the mass as a reality. And I was just like, Oh my God, yeah, every sure. time I turn around and these, these are the, these are the people and thing. But like when you were in the scene, like who, who are the, who are the cats that you were like looking up to and like being like, well, you know, and here's the thing back then, forget about cable. There wasn't any, there, there wasn't even three, we had three stations and usually most people could only get two. So live music was so much different. And AM radio ruled. There wasn't even any FM radio that I was even aware of. So what was on the charts in the big band at the time around here was Sam and the Twisters. I mean, they drove around in Corvettes and, uh, you know, played the hits, whatever you wanted to hear. You know, I was lucky. My first live performance that I saw, and I wasn't even aware at the time, my dad and a friend of his took us as kids to see the, the Harlem Globetrotters in Syracuse. And the intermission act was Cab Calloway. And I didn't know Cab Calloway from, you know, anything. But, man, when he came on shaking his head around and doing Minnie the Moocher, I thought, holy shit. I had no idea anything like that existed. And was, at the same, yeah. Was that your aha moment? Like, yeah, I want to do that. This no, like I'll tell you, the, uh, the aha moment, and I still didn't even sink in that, well, oh, this is what I want to do, but I thought I wanted to be like that was the guy that worked my, for my daddy. Uh, my dad was a carpenter. And uh, he was, the guy was probably six, seven years older than me anyway. But anyway, the movie theater in town was showing Love Me Tender with Elvis. And it was on a school night, and he, he was, said, you want to go, go to the movies with me and my girlfriend? Well, his girlfriend didn't know anything about it, so when we showed up, she wasn't that crazy. But anyway... So I even, I didn't, in 1956, I didn't, you know, I was eight years old. What did I know about Elvis or whatever? Right. But anyway, we're in this little movie theater, the Colonial Theater in Skinny House, packed with girls. And when Elvis made his appearance, the place freaking went crazy. I, I mean, girls jumping up and down. And in the end, when he dies and they have this place superimposed over the gravesite, Weeping, moaning, screaming. <laughs> I'm thinking, holy shit! Right, like <laughs> this is pretty something. That's crazy, but th 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 again, those are things that just won't happen nowadays. Yeah, they won't. They definitely won't happen. I mean, you're going to have people have their, you know, rabid fan base, but nothing like like, this, that, uh, right? like Elvis or the Beatles that literally changed the world. It did, man. And it, what what a, what an amazing time you you had, and especially in '64. That was like. You know, the Beatles played on Ed Sullivan and literally oh. changed the landscape. And like, I, I, I have, yep, I have said this before. I said the impact they had was so immediate that when they played that Sunday night, Friday before, when, pe when guys were going to school with their hair combed back, 
that Monday, they were all combing it down. <laughs> That's how they're affecting some people. Yeah. I mean, I've had, I've had arguments with people. I got some people like they don't like the Beatles or they discredit what the right. Beatles did. And then they're not, oh, they were just a boy band. They were just, I'm like, okay, well, yeah, they were a boy band, but I'm like, yeah. I go, do you, I go, every musician, I go, tell me who you love as musicians. And they tell me, I go, I guarantee they all, you know, changed their life when they saw the Beatles, like all the stuff, yeah. like it wasn't even like I'm not that they're that if you want to pick one single moment in the history of music that changed everything, it was that moment probably. Absolutely. You know? I mean, it was huge because rock and roll. I mean, you were, you were at the beginnings of rock and roll when your memories start. So like, you know, look, and I used to talk to Lemmy from motorhead when we toured with him he used to tell me, he's like, I remember a time when there wasn't rock and roll. You know, it's like, I remember when there was no rock and roll. And I'm like, and, and at first I kind of laughed and then I, it sunk in. I'm like, whoa, like, yeah, like I can't imagine what the world was like. And then he goes, then you got to remember rock and roll almost died. Like Elvis joined the military and everything kind of reverted back to what it was yeah. doing before until kind of yep. the Beatles came back around. And then that like regenerated because there was a number of years where it kind of like it was well, Peter and Elvis. Yeah. Elvis is in the monastery. Willa Richard is in the monastery. Uh, Jerry Lee Lewis is blacklisted from everything. Buddy Holly is dead. Uh, Chuck Berry's in jail. Uh, yeah, so the key figures were pretty much out of the picture for a couple of years. Wow. That's great. So that first gig goes along, and then you have a couple of years of like, I don't even know what the hell I'm going to do now. <laughs> Maybe it's over with. And then it something pulled you back in. What was that? Well, qu actually, quickly. It was in the fall of 66, we played the last gig. And then in the spring of 67, uh, I met Mark Doyle uh, <laughs> through the guy I was studying with saxophone. And, and since the guy that had played in the band with me was going to Mark Carmel, the Catholic school in, in Auburn, that, that Mark was going to. And he had told me when I was when we were playing, he was hey, this guy in Auburn, he's really good, you know, whatever. Uh, but uh, his sister plays drums, uh, uh, and I said, no girls in the band. <laughs> yeah, how, how backward was that, well, right? I mean, it was the time, it was right, you know? Yeah, the time, at the time, right. So anyway, when I, when I, my saxophone teacher said, yeah, we're having a little jam session over to Auburn, up above the music store, come on over and bring your horn, which I hadn't played my horn in a few months, and I didn't, but I went over there, and Mark and I started talking, and we other than we're at times when we're super pissed off at each other, we haven't stopped talking since then. So there's so many projects you guys have done. I mean, you know, there's so many of them, you know, like I don't even well, know. You to, know there's, they've we morphed. just finished, you know, I think around November, December, when, you know, the pandemic was in full swing, uh, I called Mark and I said, you know, let's, let's do something. Let's just write some songs, you know, let's do something to stay creative. So we just finished, we're all masters, just waiting for the artwork, uh, a, a new uh, disc of 12 new new songs. Uh, it's, it's called Down in the Dirt. Uh, so hopefully, we're, like I'm thinking June, we'll have that available. Is that going to be Doyle, listed as Doyle yeah, Whiting? Yeah, it's going to be Doyle Whiting and Mark Doyle Whiting and Mark Doyle. You know? how, uh, how many albums have you guys done together? Can you, can you, did you even have a number in your head? I don't know. I mean, we together as our own name this is only the second one it's had just it didn't include a band or you know a conglomeration of, of things but yeah but we played on a bunch of stuff and done you know the backbone slip stuff of course on the juke and bone stuff and the free will and the free will stuff and and uh doyle whiting band stuff uh yeah what what a what a journey so like what was your first you what was the first major record deal that you'd signed? Was that when you were in Free Will? Is that the one that like yeah, the first it was, it was major one? Right? Yeah, yeah. And, and the only real major one was that one. Everything else has been, you know, uh, the independent labels or our own uh, nickel or, or whatever. How, how, but yeah, and how, did RCA, how did RCA find you guys back then? How was that? We had done a showcase, a two-week showcase at a club in New York City that we kind of... Our agent manager at the time was Jim Panis out of Cortland. And uh, so he was up at five sets a night and, you know, we have people, record people come in and, you know, maybe catch a set or whatever. So, you know, if you could only turn like the 
clock. I can remember sitting upstairs in the dressing room. I know some record people there. I know they were talking just like we weren't even there. Uh, like we didn't even exist. Like uh, we were separated from uh, something. Right. And I, I can remember Jim Canis getting up and saying, you know, you're talk- you guys are talking about everything except for the boys. And we were embarrassed at the time thinking, oh, man, how corny that you would say that. And it turns out I wish we would listen to him because we didn't get the we had signed a letter of intent with a guy that didn't turn out. Uh, and then a couple of guys used to work for concerts West and concerts East uh, had seen us. And so they kind of glommed onto it and they did get the deal with RCA, but it's all, it also broke up the, the uh, management thing that we had, who was a very honest guy real connections uh he he actually his brother nicky panis was in uh was the guitar player that was in ronnie dio's band uh when they were in that terrible accident that nicky was killed oh yeah uh, dave feinstein was still had scars from it uh, uh yeah so you know he he had real he had real connections but he was, a, he was an honest guy you know the guys that we wound up signing with, not so much. Not so much. Well, <laughs> but another lesson. Yeah, no, that's, don't, that's the don't first sign of your many. Contract. Oh. Yeah, don't sign your contract with a bottle of bourbon. <laughs> it's no, not a good it's, idea. It's such a, <laughs> when I finally entered the business, it was at a very awkward time. Like when Brand New Santa signed their deal, it, we, it was the fall of 2001 and like things were changing. I mean, obviously, yeah. culturally things were changing because, I mean, we just – we signed our deal like a month after 9-11 and then the music business at that time was about to just fall apart, you know? So yeah. like, Oh yeah. We, we entered at a very weird time, which I mean, I learned a lot from it, but at the same time, it's like, wow, we signed a record deal. The very, like one of the worst times ever. And, and it not, and it had nothing to do with the people that we signed with or anything like that, because the first record label that we had signed with was, going back the best one that we had and there was four people that worked at the record labor, literally four people, wow. you know? So, wow. but you, you go back and you think about that and it's like, whew, man, there's so much, there, there's so much learning along the way, but I, I paid it. I kept my eyes open the entire time. See, that's good. That's good that you did. We did not. We, and to their credit, when we went to sign the thing, the lawyer before anybody else got there said, look at, I want you guys to understand something. RCA signs a lot of people. They throw the stuff against the wall. What sticks, they go with. What falls to the floor, they discard. And of course, we're thinking, well, okay, but that's not going to, that's going to not going to be us. Right. We're, we're sticking, right? <laughs> so, you know, so, then again, he, th- tell you what, they paid us to leave. We had a three album deal. We did two. Neither one lived up to anybody's ex- expectations. And so they wanted to go and do it. We started to work on the third album. They wanted to do a, a single instead. And we said, no, we want to do an album. By that time, there was many internal issues with the band. But so anyway, so they had to pay us to leave. But we're thinking, eh, fuck, you know, record labels, they grow on trees. You know, the record deals, no problem. But, but for them to pay you to leave, like, that's like, that would never happen nowadays. Like, nowadays, they're like, <laughs> no, it definitely would. You would have to pay them. Oh, it, you do. There's, I, I know some bands that are literally paying record labels to be on record label. I'm like, I'm like, what did you do? I mean, I don't want to name any names, but there's some people that I know of that they're like, I'm like, oh, you got to deal with, you know, I knew the record label. I don't even want to say the record label because I know people that work at the record label. Yeah. And I'm like, you, you what? And I call the people the record label. I'm like, you, you signed them. Yeah. But they got to pay us $25,000. I'm like, yeah. they're paying you. you Then you don't have a deal. Then you're just a sucker. I'm like, <laughs> I go, but wait a minute. I go, you could have given me, I went to these people. I'm like, you could have given me that $25,000 that I know that you guys had to scrape together. You could have gave that to me and I would have given, I wouldn't have spent it, but I would have at least given you a couple phone numbers that would have been spent more wisely, wisely than yeah. this. And I know yeah. the guy that owns that record label, it's a super shyster. He like him and I crossed paths a few times and I've watched that dude just like do the dirtiest things in the business. Yeah. And I warned him, but I, the, 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 the fact that bands are willing to pay to be on a record label, to pay a manager, not like, up front and then the manager will make, and then they still take a percentage. I'm like, wow, uh, it's, it's, everything's it's so crazy. backwards now. It, right. And even the, you know, the problem that you go out getting gigs is that there are guys 
that are that will play for nothing yeah. or fear. You know, and a lot of the baby boomers that have retired, they don't care if they get $20 a night. They don't care if they get anything a night. They want to play. And it's just, it cheapens the vibe. I had a friend of mine who I started with who was saying, well, we're thinking well, that maybe if we go out, and this was just in the last couple of months, maybe if we just go out and, and uh, pass the hat. I said, you don't want to do that. I said, when you set the bar that low, and who play for nothing, how are you going to get someone to convince you to pay you to play? Right. He goes, oh, you're right. It's my, my kids that kind of want to do that. And you don't want to do that. Yeah. Do that I, I tell younger musicians that all the time. I'm like somebody who's willing. And I've said, I've had to learn to say no for years because there was a time in my life I couldn't say no. I was like, I'm trying to make oh, a I living, know. you know, but yeah. then I got to a point where I'm like, wow, you, you want to pay me that? I'm like, well, no, no offense. I, I you know, I'm just going to say, no, I can't come play for that. And they're like, well, so-and-so That's and right. so-and-so and so does that. And I'm like, I know, but I go, and then I say to these people, these other musicians, I go, dude, I understand you need a gig, but at the same time, like you're hurting the bottom line here. You're hurting all you're, of us. You're hurting yourself. You're hurting everyone. And and my cons- my that. concern is now that we've we're starting to peel back out of you know whatever this happened in the past year and a half. And my and friend that I talk, get worse. it's going to get worse because <laughs> you know venues and restaurants are legitimately hurting. Okay, I understand that. You know, yeah. and oh, and I tell I tell my friends that are musicians, oh, I can't wait, and all the gigs are going to come back. I'll go, I go, watch out. Two things are going to happen. One, some of these places aren't going to have the budget that they had before, yeah. or any budget yeah. at all. So they're going to say, well, you know, we're struggling a little bit here, and and um, could you work with us and in in. And can you play for like a fraction of what you used to play? Pay yep. But I go, that's all well and good in the beginning, but it has to be an understanding when things start getting better. Like it's got to go back to that other thing, because if not, then they're going to be like, well, you've been playing for a hundred dollars for a year. Yeah. And then you set this danger of precedent. And I told this to some venues before, and this is pr- prior to the pandemic when they want to go less your money. I go, let me ask you something. I go, how much is that hamburger and French fries? Well, that's, that's $7. I go, well, can I get it for like, 350? Yeah. Yeah. Well, no, the and cost of this and that. And I'm like, well, it's the same yeah. thing here, man. I'm a hamburger. You got to look at me as a hamburger. And I understand yeah, you have costs, but I have costs too, you know, and I've learned, I'm, I'm real scared for what, what the music is going to do coming out of this because that's exactly well, and it's what's all the more, more reason why, like I said, you're in a, in a better position where you don't have to cut the cake with anybody, No, you know, and you've, you know, you've got enough places that, that work and you have a, and again, it's your reputation. It's your reputation when you show up on time, when you do a good job, when you don't get loaded, you know, when you don't cut the time, you know, I mean, that makes a difference. That that was one thing I had to learn. It's like coming out of brand new Sentinels, you know, sex, drugs, and rock and roll in that band, you know, and when it came out of it and I started doing this full time and then I was really like realizing like, man, I'm, I'm playing five nights a week and I'm getting drunk five nights a week. And then all of a sudden yep. I had like an aha moment where I was like, all right, here's my thing. Am I going to be a weekend warrior go get a day job? And then I can use those gigs on the weekend and get loaded and make a little bit of money. Or do I don't make a living at this? And that's why I tell people, I'm like, I don't, you don't see me drink very often at my gigs. And if I do, I'm nursing the beer or nursing a drink yep. the entire yep. night because I'm like, it's socially acceptable for us to be able to do that. But at the same time, it's still a job. You can't go to your job and drink all day and, you know, figure that one, someone's going to accept that. And second of all, you're going to do a good job at what you're supposed to be doing. No, I had the same thing. And this is probably close to 30 years ago. I used to drink when I, when I played, you know, like you're saying, it was a fucking party, you know, but then I'm on the way home from a gig out of town and I'm talking in the car or whatever. And I, all of a sudden I realized, fucking repeating myself. Yeah. I just said this. I said, I'm fucking drunk. You know, and I, so I thought, you know what? I'm not drinking when I play anymore. And rarely not. I mean, if I'm at the Sherwood, you know, last set, I'll nurse yeah. a beer for the set and have a beer when I'm done. But yes. you're showing up drinking and starting out drinking. It's right. crazy because like you say, yeah, it's a party. It's recreation for the audience, but we're the workers. You know, mm-hmm. we're, we're the workers. It's our job. Yeah. The waitresses aren't getting plowed and the people in the kitchen no. are getting well, and they might be, but you know, like, <laughs> right. you, you're not going to have their job for very long, but it's like, man, that's the professionalism that comes along with. And those were the things that I looked at, but like people like you and other people in town that like had transitioned and like, okay, how, where's the longevity going to be here? The longevity is like, take this very seriously. Do you want to go? Yeah. Do I want to let loose at times? Yeah, but I will, but it won't be when I'm working. 
you know, right. just like anybody else, you know, and, or maybe once in a while it's that type of gig. And, and it, you know, right, exactly. there's a time and a place for that, but majority of the time it isn't. So, all right, let's go back again. I know that you guys, you toured with Van Halen, you opened for yeah. Van Halen and that was, was that late seventies or early eighties? Somewhere, where, where were you? That, I think that was 83. That was the diver, the last couple of months of the diver down tour. Crazy. How, and what band was that? Was that? That was Joe Whiting and the Bandit Band. Okay. And we had done, yeah, we had done a, a local single. Uh, and uh, our agent was David Rezik. I, I call him an agent. He was our friend. He's my friend. He still is my friend. I love Dave. And Jack Bell, who I was friends with, was a big promoter. And he had promoted the uh, Van Halen date at the uh, Dome, which at the time was their biggest date that they had headlined themselves. And so when they, when the group called After the Fire, who was, was their opening act at the time, had a, a hit on their own, and they had to go out on their own, they needed an opening act. So they had people submit the stuff, and they asked Jack, uh, you got anybody to submit? And we, he submitted the thing, and we got the gig. <laughs> but I've heard, like, I don't know if it was interviews of yours, but like, like some of the just... Some of the craziness. Let's talk about the music, but like, I mean, at that time, Van Halen was like, I can't, Im- I can't huge. imagine what they were huge. I can't imagine what the circus was that was. Oh, that well, band. you know, they were pretty disciplined. They were pretty disciplined, uh, but the audience, oh my god! I mean, we used to do a set, and in fact, the first, the first uh, gig, the, their their head honcho came in and said, "Look, you got thirty minutes. If you go over thirty minutes." It's going to get very quiet, very dark, very quick. <laughs> Shut so, them down. Yeah, exactly. And so, um, but the audience was just, I mean, brutal. Brutal. I mean, it's throwing shit. But they were throwing shit at Van Halen, too. But not, <laughs> I mean, some, I can remember a couple of nights, we didn't even last 15 minutes. Because wow. people were, I mean, and I told the band, I said, look, if bottles come flying up here, do not throw them back. So. You know, somebody threw a whiskey bottle, I can't remember where it was, threw a whiskey bottle up, and I think the drummer, the bass player, threw the thing back. So we're we're done, and we're walking, and my back is to the audience. Man, I felt a fucking, like someone threw a softball at my elbow. It was that same whiskey bottle that was thrown back. Uh, And actually, one of the first statements did a, where was it? I think it was in Canada, maybe. It's uh, in a Boston Garden, they might have Boston Gardens. And when we started, all you could see out there, you know, was the lights. And from look like from the very rear of the of the uh, place, something was spinning, spinning, coming. And it meant it crashed right in front of our feet. And it was one of those 25 ounce, uh, you know, soda containers that someone had just filled up with ice and threw this fucking must have weighed five pounds. Oh <laughs> okay, this is what's coming. Uh, but, and the, and the, but, you know, some nights it was actually good. Some nights the audience was at least receptive, you know? Right. Uh, and other nights the audience did not want, all they wanted was Van Halen. They, they did not want you up there. But, <sighs> but it was, you know, good learning. I had played big, I before that I had uh, done a couple of stints with Bobby Comstock and, uh, you know, he did the Nader uh, revival shows uh, in Madison Square Garden, the Spectrum and places like that and the Boston Gardens. So, you know, I had played big venues before that wasn't the, you know, thing, but, but never to an audience that was like openly hostile. <laughs> <laughs> No, I've never had that. I mean, we had a couple of hecklers along the way, but I mean, if you guys, I mean, we were playing in clubs, so we never really got it. And and those people like would look at us and brand new sim be like, yeah, I'm not really going to heckle these dudes because I, one time we got heckled, we were playing some radio show in like Louisville, Kentucky, and they put us on before this huge cover band and no, no like we want the cover band. There was this huge yeah, cover I band. Know. <laughs> and some guy was talking shit and we started talking and we started playing. Luckily we had three guitar players. One of our guitar players put his his guitar down and starts walking out and we're still playing and we're like well no one even notices because the sound still sounds the same and he's walking and we're all looking at each other like dude we may have to all throw our instruments down and go like 
something might happen. That was like the, the craziest thing. And nothing did. The guy, like my guitar player, scared the living crap out of his tune. He walked back up, put his guitar on before the end of the song and it was over with. I'm like, what just happened? Oh, that's crazy. So what do you have like the most, what is your most memorable gig? Like, like one that's like, man, that was like, that was just pure magic. Do you have one that really sticks out in the front of your mind? I think probably, uh, some gigs that we played at the country tavern when the band was just really, you know, when you get that, when you have that feeling uh, over a period of months, when you're just clicking on all cylinders and people can't deny it, you can't deny it, people can't deny it. And it's just, it's just magic kind of nice that, that we had at the country tavern, uh, you know, which are some, you know, just club dates. It weren't, you know, the big, big concert things or where you're opening up. We did, uh, you know, we opened up for a, a bunch of people, you know, and they because those gigs. Now you got to pay for them to get those things. <laughs> yeah, uh, exactly. You know, they, but you know, good gigs, but it was always the ones that were, where you were being yourself, you know, and, and you were just, people were digging you being yourself. Yeah. One of our favorite gigs ever was like, we showed up, and the promoter's like, listen, there's a huge show that's going on down the street. I don't think anybody's coming to this one. We're like, God, there's got to be somebody. No one came to this gig. Like, literally, it was us, the bartender, the sound guy. And even the promoter left to go to the other show. He paid us. He's like, man, I'm real sorry. And he apologized. <laughs> and we got paid. We got paid. And, like, we <laughs> just went up and we we had the best set ever. We're like... That yeah. was, we just played great. And the bartender was like, that was like, we had a blast. And I was like, that's one of my most memorable gigs for a lot of reasons. It's one of them, like, man, no one saw us. We just played our asses off. You know, we didn't care. Yeah, we that's didn't, right. You played the music. We didn't care. Like, we, we, we just got paid. He gave us beer. He gave us pizzas. Like, we're like, what, what more could we ask for? Like, just let's have that's some right. fun, you know, but oh, good man. So, so all of, of all the rock stars that you got to meet along the way. And all the more the the people in the biz, who is the coolest person? Like you're like, wow, that is the coolest person I have ever met. You know, and I and he was not really a rock star. He was Jerry Lee Lewis's longtime guitar player, and actually married Jerry Lee Lewis's sister, Kenneth Loveless, who still when and I don't know if Jerry's going to ever play any more gigs, but he was such a freaking nice guy. We were playing the, the Spectrum in Philadelphia with uh, Bobby Comstock and, and there was a Nader show and Jerry Lee Lewis and uh, I think it was Chuck Berry was the, yeah, they were both the headliners and uh, Jerry Lee Lewis showed up. I mean, he couldn't even walk. And uh, but Kenneth Lovelace came right up, you know, introduced himself and just was such a nice guy. And Jerry Lee Lewis, he went out. It was his birthday. It was Jerry Lee Lewis's birthday. <laughs> How long ago was it? It was his 39th birthday. Uh, and when he started playing, it sounded like he was singing in tongues. I mean, he was so loaded. <laughs> and that got into it. But, yeah, so, you know, the Van Halen guys were nice. I really didn't have much. Uh, David Lee Roth kind of kept to himself. But the, the other guys were, were nice guys. Uh, they They treated us well. They said, you know, when they were an opening act, they got treated like shit. And they, they said, you know, when we get to be headliners, we're not going to treat our opening acts like shit. And they didn't. And they're, they're more props to them. They were, they were very professional and, and very nice. You know, yeah. I had a, you know, Chuck Berry. Uh, I'm a huge Chuck Berry fan. And Bobby backed Chuck Berry up a gazillion times and was good buddies with him. And when we were doing the Madison Square Garden. Uh, I knew I could have gone to Bobby and say, you know, let me Chuck. I want to talk to him. Uh, and if Bobby would, it would have been as easy as pie. But I thought I didn't want to do that. I thought if I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it on my own. So we're backstage in the hall, and Chuck is, strangely enough, by himself, leaning against the wall. I looked at him, briefly made eye contact with him, and the look in his face was... <laughs> Don't even think about don't it. Don't fucking and so I, yeah, Don't even think about it. And so, you know, I'm a big fan. I always want to be a big fan. I don't want to go up and have him be a prick, no. you know, or say something. So I, I never went up to him. <laughs> that, that That's ruined a few people in my, in my, in my yeah, experiences. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah. oh, man, I can't even listen to their music the same anymore. That's and I, right. I'm like, I just because like. Because I don't care. Yeah, I, no matter how good their music is, if they're a prick, 
I don't, I don't want to deal with assholes on any level. I go if it comes to me and we end up striking up a friendship or a conversation on its own, and it ends up being kind of natural. But like other than that, I'm, I was watching this TV series a few years ago on Showtime, and it was short lived. It was called Roadies. And there was an episode where they brought this super fan out because he had all the stuff that the, this band needed to like put out this box set they want to do. This guy had the definitive collection. So they brought him out on the road for a few days. And finally, one of the days, the tour manager looks up at the guy and it's like, all right, man, you, the band is ready to like talk with you. You want to go back and meet him? He's like, no. He's like, what do you mean? You're the biggest fan. You're like helping us out. And he's like, I don't want to meet him. I don't ever want to meet my, I don't want to meet my idols. And then he's like, why? It's because... He goes, I'm afraid that'll ruin what I have with that music. Yep. And I'm like, wow, yep. you know, it's very profound. I've heard that before, but there's something about that episode that really like, and it's yeah. the truth. I tell people, I'm like, oh, you want to meet the, you, do you really want to meet him? Cause you might not want to meet him. You might not, you might be sorry. You just might be sorry. You know, and plus I've never been one of these glad handers that, you know, got to go up to somebody and say, can we get a picture? Yeah. Can I get an autograph? No. You know, Hey, what's your, whatever, you know, it's just never, I, I, I admire from afar and, you know, appreciate what they do and hope that they're good people, but you never can tell. No, you don't know. You don't know, man. Sometimes you're like, ah, and, and, and that's all right. But you know, and, and then there's other times where I'm like, well, man, they've been on the road for, you know, seven months. They're, you know, they just played six shows in a row. I'm like, you don't understand. Like, this is when you're backstage, like when I have people with me sometimes and I bring them, I'm like, I don't bring people backstage very often because I'm like, you got to understand there's etiquette back here. Yeah. And I need you yeah. to be able to behave yourself. You know, like it, me and Stacey Waterman had this moment a few years ago. We were working the show uh, at the, at the baseball stadium. It was Bob Dylan uh, John Cougar, Mellencamp, and, and Willie I, I was at the show. I was oh at the show. And, and I remember her and I at one point sitting at catering and like literally at the table that we were at, all three of these guys are sitting there. And I'm like, man, I know that <laughs> like there's, you know, this is the first time in the history. I'm like, what the f what the, what the fuck? Why are we sitting here? Like, this is a moment where like this, this is a moment where like, I don't feel like I belong here. Like I'm about to be a fanboy, but you got to reel it in. And Stacy's like me too, you know, but like out of all these times, but man, what a, now, what a I, surreal I experience sometimes it is. Exactly. One night uh, on the Van Halen thing, I'm in the, one of the guys, the hotel rooms, everybody's, you know, smoking some weed, whatever. In walks ZZ Top. And they're chatting, and I remember one of the guys in ZZ Top, who they obviously knew Van Halen, vice versa, said, and who, who's that guy? And, and one of the guys in said, oh, he's okay, he's cool. But I'm thinking, what am I doing in a fucking hotel room? <laughs> like, what high? I, I'm like, how did I get here? <laughs> how, did I get, how did I get out? <laughs> how did I get here? Yeah, there's a, I, I bring this quote up very often from that movie, That Thing You Do. And they're yeah, just, yeah. They're just about their, they're just about their to... Uh, do their, I think it's their TV experience and the bass and the guitar player leans into the drummer. He's like, how did we get here? Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. How did we, yeah. Because I'm like, it sounds so simple, but like I've been in those moments, like how did I get here? This is, yeah, so how crazy. did we get here? But I mean, I know, how, I how blessed are we to be able to have these experiences? And like, and sometimes like we just think that was, it's normal, but like we've lived a life that very few people have lived. And some people just don't understand, you know? No, exactly. Exactly. And the, the fact that we came up in a time where you could actually go out and play a lot of gigs, you know, we, even when I went in 64, 65, like everybody was having church dances, high school dances, house parties, you know, stuff like that, where you could, I can remember, you know, we would get, we got to the point where we're making 75 bucks a night in total. But remember in 1964, 65, if you, played a weekend and you had 30 bucks in your pocket, most of your peers were getting like a dollar allowance. Right. You know, at the time I was also working with my dad summers as a carpenter, making about an, making 50 cents an hour, but that's 1250. And I'm going out and making, you know, 30 bucks on a weekend. Holy fuck. I was in high cotton. <laughs> you know what? Musicians are still only making 30 bucks a week. I know exactly. And with exactly. inflation, like 30 bucks back then was probably like, you know, it's probably like two or $300 now. Easy with the inflation <laughs> i know i remember one time i was a few years ago and it was right after greg italiano the owner of uh the oh, lost yeah, horizon had, had passed and you know his his family had asked me to to play at the services and stuff like that and me and his and his and his nephew john were sitting down going through stuff from the lost and we found all these old calendars from like the 80s yeah. 
and it was yeah. had all of Greg's handwriting in there and like who was playing. We we're like, oh my God, look at this lineup for this month of 84, you know, and stuff like that. And there was this one month that we looked at and I can't remember what year it was. It was either 84 or 85. And there was people that played there that month. Like um, the Ramones had played there that month. There was a couple the other. police like, probably did. Yeah, there was some big names on there and it had their guarantee underneath it. But you know who was actually making more money than those guys? The Atlas Linen Company every Friday night or every first Friday every night and the Paul Case band the first Saturday night of the month. And I'm like, they're making yeah. they're making two grand and this was nineteen and the Mermones got paid five hundred bucks. I'm like, what the fuck was it? It was just a reality check of like what is going on and then you see what yeah. they're getting paid and I'm like, musicians are still getting paid the same amount of money. Uh, they're still getting paid the same and and the hundred dollars that they're getting now, you know, is like. <laughs> It's crazy. I know. I, t- I tell people, like, man, I go, if you're going to, I, I try to tell young kids who are getting in the business and they, they, they want my wisdom. I'm like, man. And the first half hour of the conversation, we don't even talk about music. We talk about like, yeah. you got a girlfriend, you got a wife, you got a, do you have a, do you have a mortgage? Do you have, you know, I start talking yeah. about all these things. I go, well, what does that have to do with that? I go, because this is going to like, if, if you're, you really like those things, then you need to stay what you're doing because you yeah. might lose all of them. Not just one, exactly, yeah. all of them. I mean, you, yeah, exactly. I mean, you gotta, you gotta really, and I tell people that the same thing. If you're thinking of starting into this, first of all, you gotta love it. Yes. Not just like it, not just want it. You gotta love it mm-hmm. because it will break your heart over and over again. And music is the cruelest of mistresses. Maybe not the music, but the business part the of business, it is, yeah. is the cruelest. You know, so you gotta love the music. Oh, it, it, but you know, I can't imagine doing anything. I mean, at this point, like, you, you, could you imagine like an alternate reality? Like what? No. What, like if, but what would the alternate reality have been for you? Like well, I, you I know, at least, I at least went to college. I got a college degree. I was going to be a history teacher and coach football because I played football in college. Oh, yeah. So there was an alternate reality. It was yeah. could have been a pretty concrete one, but I stepped away from that. But there was, was there an alternate reality that could have been Joe Whiting? No. Well, you know, uh, I remember it was in, it must be 70, 77, maybe I, I'd, I'd done a, the second stint with Bobby Comstock. And then I did a year with the reformed elf, you know, after Ronnie left yeah. David and Gary and, and uh, Craig Gruber put it back in and we did a year. And I, I had just, you know, got hooked up with my future wife and, you know, she had a, a three-year-old daughter uh, who I later adopted uh, who from I, her first I, marriage. I love Heather. Are you talking, are you referring oh, to Heather? Yeah, yeah, oh, God, yeah, I yeah, her. yeah, yeah. Heather, I love Heather. See, I, I met her when, when, when she just turned oh, three. Uh, and, and so I thought, you know, I'm just really tired of either being one step ahead or one step behind as yeah. a bill collector. So I was still had a band that I was playing in, but I, my dad had a, I had an opening. I could work for my dad as a carpenter. And then ironically, you know, it, almost immediately within a year, I started to get really busy playing, but it never occurred to me. I thought, you know what? I, I like working with my dad. I had time off when I needed it. And at, at the time I was working probably at least 30 hours a week with my dad and playing close to 150 days a year <laughs> with the band. And, and now I think of that. Now I think there's no way I could do that. I mean, it's not, it's not there anymore, but, uh, all but to be, I all to be I, young again. <laughs> oh, exactly. But I knew even work with my dad is, and it, I learned stuff from him that helped because you know, we have an old house. So there's always something that I'm doing in it. And I learned from my dad, you know, how to do a lot of things. Uh, but it, it you know, it, it never occurred to me when he retired, uh, I thought, you know, I'm going to, and he retired in maybe 88. And it, so at that point, uh, I thought, you know what, I'm just going to, I'm just going to do this. And again, you had to make sacrifices and whatever, but it, it turned out okay. And from that point on, as frustrating as it could get at times, I thought, you know, this is what I do. You know, this, yeah. is, this is what I do. That's exactly, man. And, and that's what someone says now. I'm like, even, 
even with the past year, like, I mean, luckily I've always had a bunch of irons in the fire. I learned a long time ago, like, man, you just don't be one dimensional. Like, like, no, definitely. You don't be one dimensional. And, and like, just I, my thing was like, I'm going to learn every song under the sun. And then I'm also been embracing technology along the way, you know, in those early days of MySpace, I, I would read books yeah. and all that stuff about all that. And then transition. And then like in the past year, like I've been able to like flip my entire business into like, staying at home and literally playing to a camera for two, 300 yeah. people a night and that's around the world. That's, it's, it's, that's fantastic. And I mean, again, it's, it's learn to play the piano because <laughs> you can, you know, it's just a good thing. It's a good, I've tried to take lessons. I tried to take lessons from Bobby Doyle, Mark's dad twice. Bob is a fantastic player. I tried to take lessons from Mark. I took lessons briefly from George Rossi, but it, that part of my brain just doesn't it doesn't I I will look at something and it will make sense to me the day the next day it's like I'm reading Greek again Uh, so I guess it gets you just got to know your limitations but and that's that's why I tell everybody when you, I go, when you're young and your brain's a sponge, like learn every instrument you possibly Everything. can because every it's good and you, bad. Yeah. Because then you'll have the ability to be able to learn other instruments easier as you get older. But if you're like a one yeah. pony or just playing that, like I can fumble my way around some other stuff, but I'm like, man, I really wish I played some other instruments along the way. But you know, luckily I played the instrument that literally mimics all the instruments. Yeah, exactly. You know, so exactly. I, I was, I was, I started playing piano because I wanted to learn to play guitar. And this guy's like, well, learn to play a piano first and then we'll take guitar lessons. And I never took yeah. guitar lessons because I just really no. loved piano. There's plenty of guitar players. Plenty There's of not guitar a great players. piano players. No. You know, piano. No. It's, no. It's, it's a great instrument. No, it's been, it's, 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 it's crazy. What a crazy life we have lived. But like, I'm really glad that I finally got you on here, man, to, to chat. I mean, um, you, you've had quite a, quite a career along the way and, uh, and you know, we're only scratching the surface, but you know, obviously I'm going to put up a big write up in, in, the, in when I post this and everything, but you know, I appreciate your time, you know, for sure. No, I, I, yeah. And, and, and I believe me, Joe, I appreciate what you've done. I've seen, you know, from the start when you, you know, I remember brand new sin, but I was, you know, more involved with what I was doing, but you know, as your solo stuff, you know, I saw you at a bunch of places and I read about your, what you're doing and, and I mean, it's admirable. And again, lucky. We're, we're, there's very few people in this area that are making their living from playing music yeah. of any sort. Uh, me, you know, at this point, like I said, I'm 73. I don't have to sing for my supper anymore. I've done it a gazillion years. And when stuff comes up, it's fun or creative. Yep. I, I do it and I want to do it. But, you know, I, I, I guess it's you get to that point uh, where... It's just, you do it when you want it. I, like I said, I still love it, but uh, I'm not compelled and I don't have to, I don't have to do it. You know, right. I, I have to be creative, but you know. Yeah. That's a different part of the brain, but like to, to do it yeah. because you're like, oh my God, I got, you know, this, I got to pay this, you know, like I'm still right. in that, I'm still in that phase, but I'm starting to see a longer picture. Like, okay, what's, what's the next thing? Because you know, I tell people, I'm like, they're like, well, are you going to go back to playing 300 gigs? You know, I was playing like 300 gigs a year for the past 10 years. Yeah, I mean, one year I played 326 gigs. That was like a couple of years ago. And I'm like, Jesus Christ. I'm like, I can't That's do this much. Longer. I can't do this because it was just, it's, it's time. Not even it's, so much. It was the time that I was missing. And then well, my daughter see, that, was born. Exactly. That's the time. And that's why I look at it now. I think you know, somebody, you know, wants me to do a gig. I'm thinking, let me think. Okay, it's, by the time it gets there, set up, go home. I say, is this how I want to spend six or seven hours yep. of my life? And let's face it, in my age, and I'm not complaining, but you know, three quarters of my life at least is in the rearview mirror. So yep. whatever I got left, I want to do it. I want to yep. do what I want to do. Yeah, because you I, know, I knew I knew there's. I also knew there was a shelf life, and and you know, I watched guys that outplayed their shelf life in this town and it's like man yeah you're, yeah. you're still playing this circuit like dude you're the old dude in the corner like no offense but like you're the old dude in the exactly. corner at this bar and exactly. you are not connecting with this crowd like this crowd doesn't well, want to hear what you got so like that's exactly right and yeah. that's a tough bridge to cross too you know it is. but but again and that, at this point 
like I people would call up for a couple of days, and I say, no, I don't really think that that what I do nope. with the band is appropriate for what you're talking about it, because I know I can know what this gig is going to entail, and it's just not the right. It's not the right fit. I don't want to be in an uncomfortable situation yeah. anymore. I'm I'm learning to say no more this year now that things are peeling back because I've yeah I've changed my business. I got again some other irons in the fire. So I'm like, I'm only gonna go out and play the gigs that I really want to play now. I don't want to yeah. just go out and play them because I need to. I don't I and, and that's that. that's the thing, Joe, is and if I can pass on one little bit of wisdom is both my wife and I have been self-employed virtually, or certainly her whole career and mine, except for, you know, when I was working with my dad, <clears throat> that is, there's nobody putting a 401k away for you, you know, uh, because I can't tell you how many people my age or even younger, Jesus Christ, they don't have anything put aside. They're in debt. And I'm thinking, man, fortunately, my wife has always been, you know, you got to put this away. We got to save this. We got to save this. And uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm not rich, but I'm comfortable. I'm not, no one's going to have to throw a benefit for me, which no. is a blessing. <laughs> no, I mean, that was the, the best thing I did business-wise about two and a half years ago. I played a gig in Cape Vincent, New York for this woman. It was just, it, it was a fill-in date. I needed a date. And my buddy called me. He's like, Hey man, my friend, you willing to drive to Cape Vincent? I'm like, yeah, I'll drive Cape Vincent. Money's right. And money was right. I went up there and I played for this woman who owns this really nice restaurant. And then her and I were having a drink afterwards, having a meal. And then come to find out, she's like, well, I don't really, you know, I own a restaurant, but I'm an accountant. And I'm like, oh, no kidding. Her and I <laughs> str struck it up. And we had a lot of, we talked for like two and a half hours about business, about my business. She wanted to know about my business. And she's like, you know what? Do you have anybody that like, like, what do you do? How do you manage your money? I'm like, I'm horrible like I shouldn't be left alone with money. I'm a, I'm a musician. And I brought her on board and it was the smartest thing I ever did because now I have someone that does those things for me, yeah. you know? And yep. like she was, if it wasn't for her, the pandemic would have been horrible for me, but she had me in a position where I could like, all right, let's see how this sorts out. Why don't you take care of this, 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 and this. And she like, she, put me in that position. And I tell everybody, I go, listen, you don't have to hire my account, but you really should have someone that like is good with that money because yeah, if you're, right. If you're not good with it, get somebody. Who yeah. is, and, who and most, can... and most musicians aren't, we're horrible. We're, we're no, too impulsive exactly. of people, you know, like, well, I got yep. 200 bucks. I'm going to blow it. You know, like, so, yep. so, but that's, oh, yeah. so, all right, well, I'll let you get on with your day, man. I really appreciate you again. Hey, and, I appreciate it, Joe. And, and, a pleasure. And I, I feel like I've, I've I, I know you a lot better. And yes. I, I, like I said, I'm a fan and, and uh, not only of what you're doing, but of a, of a fellow musician who is, who's got his head straight. <laughs> <laughs> Somewhat. Yes. <laughs> so I'm, I'm sure, I'm sure I'll see you over the summer at some point, man. And, uh, and, and we'll chat Great. some more. So thank you. Joe. Take care. Thank you, Joe. All right. You too. Bye-bye. What a great conversation. I mean, for a man who has been in this business for nearly 60 years and, and if, I mean, you heard him, he's played the biggest venues you can think of Madison square garden. And he was, he's talking Boston gardens. He's talking legendary venues. Uh, somebody that I have always looked up and respected long before I ever met him and to call and, and to be on the same level with someone like that still fucks with my head. I feel like I'm an imposter at times you know, like when I get to, to be friends with not, I'm not just talking about big rock stars. I'm just talking about the people that I've gotten to know in this town. Like the, the people that I looked up to, you know, someone like Joe Whiting and someone like Ronnie Lee, Mark Doyle. And when I can be on now, I realize I'm on the level of these people and I have the respect and admiration of these people. I still feel like what? Like, I'm just, I'm just some dude from Southern Square that can kind of sing or whatnot. So to have the perspective that Joe has and, you know, gives me hope that like, listen, I'm doing the right thing and I can get to that point in my life where I'm comfortable, man. I'm comfortable with my life. I'm comfortable with my musicianship. I mean, he's 73, still making records, still being inspired, still loving what he does. I want to be that man. That is something to, to, to want to be, to want to, to attain. I want to attain that level for sure. So like, I really appreciate Joe. And if you guys have never, if you're not in the area, uh, you can look up, I'll, I'll have some links in the social medias to be able to, and then you can go down the rabbit hole. Joe's been, he was even, we never even talked about, he was on the tonight show with Johnny Carson. I mean, like 
what the fuck? I mean, like this dude, like I've had some pretty rock star moments, but this dude had way more because he came up in a time where things were just different. And for him to still be on the level and still be a cool cat, that fucking means a lot. So Joe Whiting, again, thank you for being on. Um, Again, uh, there's going to be some changes to this podcast, not to this specific podcast, but I'm thinking about adding another podcast. I got something in my mind and I just, I want to be creative. So let's see where that goes. If you've made it this far into the episode, I appreciate you because I know how precious time is. So even if you listen to some five and 10 minute segments, which sometimes I do with a lot of the podcasts I do, just thank you for, for taking your time and listening. And, um, next week, I actually know the other person I have. Sometimes I kind of fly by to see my pants, but next week episode is going to be a fucking unreal episode. I have a guy that's coming on the podcast named flat earth. Dave says it all right. He's a flat earther. Okay. Now, before you dismiss it right away, this guy's highly intelligent, very well-spoken, very well-researched. Um, am I a flat earther? No. Do I believe in the globe? Yes. Do I think there's something more than, I mean, we've never, have you ever been out in outer space? Have you ever seen, have you ever been on the moon? You ever been, you ever been to these places? No. So you leave you skeptical, but I'm a conspiracy theorist. I love a good conspiracy theory. And I also love very challenging point of views. So this next week is going to be fucking interesting as fuck. I can't wait again. Thank you to Joe Whiting. Everybody, uh, anybody is interested in sponsoring the podcast. Let me know. You'll be, you'll be hearing your ad throughout the entire thing. Shout outs to my producer, Cody Lisi, and also to the executive producer of this whole friggin' thing, Josh. K-Rock Josh, Josh Grosman, and to you guys and gals that are listening to this. I'll see you next week with Flat Earth Dave. Peace! Yeah!